All right. Good morning, everyone. Let us uh, let us begin. So, welcome to this second part of our Tefillah series. My apologies for the cancellation last week. What I'd like to try to do this week a little bit, Mirat Hashem, is to delve a bit more into some of the hashkafa of Tefillah. So, last time, last time we had our share, we really focused much more in terms of. The nature of tefillah, da'oraisa, dirabanan, biblical, rabbinic. We spoke a little bit about the experiential nature of tefillah. What I'd like to try to focus on a little bit today is what is it exactly that we try to accomplish through tefillah? What, what, what is it that we're trying to do? What is it that we're trying to accomplish What's the goal? See, often the reflexive answer is, what's the goal of tefillah? Well, if you look at tefillah, most tefillah seems to be petitional in nature. So we're trying to get things. If we're trying to get things, we're dependent on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There are certain things that I need. So tefillah is the mechanism through which I obtain that which I need from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The challenge with that, of course, is the Rebbe Olam knows what I need even more than I know what I need. And often, again, things, things that I think I need, I don't really need. Things that I don't even realize that I need, I truly need. So it's strange to say that the entire essence of tefillah is in order to be able to obtain something from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So I want to start actually by sharing with you three different approaches as to what it is that we try to accomplish through the mechanism of prayer. If you take a look at number one, this is from an incredible sefer or Sedasvarm, called Nesiv Bina. Nesiv Bina, I think I mentioned this in the last year, essentially like an encyclopedia on tefillah. Anything and everything you ever wanted to know about davening, all davening, hashkaf of davening, halach of davening, breakdown of tefillos, Nesiv Bina by Rav Nathanson. So he writes this follows. He quotes three different opinions. The first opinion is of Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. If you take a look, we're not going to do all of this. I just want to show it to you kind of in like what we call Rashi Prakim, in general outline of ideas. So if you take a look again in one Aleph, of Shamshin Rafal Hirsch writes, he says, he says as follows, Hamila lehispalo. So remember again, Rav Hirsch posits, in order to truly understand any particular dynamic, so look at the root of the word. So right, we, we look at tefillah. Now we often translate the word tefillah as prayer. But the truth is, says Rav Hirsch, let's look at the shoresh. The shoresh of the word tefillah is palal. Pei lamid lamid. What's the meaning of the word palal? Pei lamid lamid. So Rav Hirsch says something beautiful. He says, Hamila lehispalel ashamimeno gzura tefillah hora'asa lishpot. The word tefillah, says Rav Hirsch, palal, means to judge. Means to judge. Lishpot. So what does this mean? So now a little bit of diktuk, right? a little bit of Hebrew grammar over here. So if palal, pelamid, lamid, means to go ahead and judge, lihit palel, right, is the hit palel form, the reflexive form of the word palal, which means to engage in the process of judgment. To engage in the process of judgment. So lihit palel, means to engage in the process, but again, because it's reflexive, it doesn't mean to engage in the process of judgment of others. Right? Everybody likes doing that. But rather, it means, again, to engage in the process of judgment of one's self. Lehit palel, to engage in the process of judging myself. Ladun es atzmi, to judge myself. Lishof lemishpat emes al atzmi, to arrive at the truth of who and what I am. Perusha, 
I mean, one Aleph, third line in. Efo, pirashti michaya hamasa, ve'etira likras mishpat emes alatzmi, al ha'ani shali. This is so profound. Rav Hirsch says, the entire dynamic of prayer is to engage in the process of self-evaluation, of self-judgment. That's the idea. Which probably, if you think about it, is so fascinating. Because how many parts of prayer seem to be really linked to the process of self-evaluation or self-judgment? <laughs> None of it. Right? In other words, if you think about this, it's pretty amazing. Like, th- think about think about again, whatever, whatever person davens in the morning. But think about the things that you say. Most of the things that we say are much more focused on thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu and personal petition. So we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to how we kind of bring everything together in just a little bit. But if Hirsch says, if you want to understand what the true dynamic of tefillah is, lehit palel, tefillah offers me the opportunity to engage in the process of self-judgment. Where am I holding in life? Where am I holding in life? Which, by the way, is something so fascinating because it also gives you a brand new understanding of kavana, right? We often, when we think about kavana, so right, well, what's the definition of kavana? What does it mean to have kavana? Concentration. Concentration. Concentration on what? So again, on a basic level, it's perishamilos. What am I understanding? What I'm saying, right? Understanding who I'm davening to, and here's what's fascinating: is that often we assume that the antithesis of kavana is allowing your mind to wander. In other words, I shouldn't be thinking about anything other than the words that I'm saying. And Rav Hirsch says, it's probably not true. Probably the essence of tefillah is actually allowing your mind to wander. It's just allowing it to wander to the right things. So if I'm thinking about, you know, all the, all, all the things I have to do today, I'm thinking about my meetings, I'm thinking about my errands, I'm thinking about, that's probably not the right focus of davening. But says Rav Hirsch, the entire essence of davening is to allow my wa- mind to wander onto what? Onto me. Tefillah offers us the opportunity to engage in the process of self-evaluation. How am I doing in life? How am I doing in life? How am I managing my relationships? Right? How, am, am I a successful person? Right? Think about this for just a moment. Am I successful in life? Well, in order to answer that question, what do you have to do? What do you have to do? If you want to, right, don't we all think about it? Isn't this the million dollar question? Am I leading a successful life? So how do you answer that? Step one. Right? So step one is, before you even evaluate, how do you define success? What does success look like in our lives? It's such a fundamental question. You know, I understand, see, people have an easier time. In my career, I know what success looks like, right? Success looks like making a certain amount of money. Success looks like having a certain title. But in life, in life, what does success look like in life? And you'd be surprised how many of us never actually answer that question. Well, if I don't answer for myself what success looks like in life, then what am I working towards? Then, then how, how, how am I measuring my own growth? What does a successful life look like for me? So says Rav Hirsch, tefillah offers me the opportunity to A, identify what is a successful life. As a Jew, what, what is a success, as a human being, what is a successful life for me? And then tefillah offers me the opportunity to judge myself, to judge myself and to say, am I being successful? Am I meeting those metrics? Am I accomplishing? Am I growing 
am I doing? That's a first. He goes on, you'll look at the rest on your own. But this is the first model. Lehit palel, shoresh palal, pe lamid lamid, hit pael, reflexive form, to engage in the process of personalistic judgment. And by the way, when you, when you think about this as tefillah, tefillah becomes so much more of a rewarding experience. Right? You know, one, one of the most difficult things, one of the most difficult things, especially like in chinuch, is tefillah. Hey, it, it's almost impossible. It's so difficult in today's day and age. I think maybe maybe girls have a bit of an easier time with it than boys, but it feels like, in general, one of the hardest things is to teach kids davening. I don't mean how to say the words. I mean how to connect with the experience. I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I would venture to say most of us never learned that the whole concept of tefillah is about thinking about your life and engaging in a process of self-evaluation. We probably didn't learn this when we were young. And the truth is, imagine if you would learn this when you're young, because who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want an opportunity just to take a couple of minutes out of the day to think about their life? And maybe as a kid, thinking about your life looks one way, and as an adult, it means something different. But what a profound experience that three times a day, Chazal said to us, just think about your life. Just think about how you're doing, where you're going, what you're doing. How do you define success? Are you a successful person? If I am a successful person, great. How to become more successful? If I'm not successful, how do I begin to taste success? That's the entire essence of tefillah. If you take a look at paragraph base, so this is from a Rav Yehuda Tzim Mecklenburg. Rav Mecklenburg was a contemporary of the Malbim. He lives in the late 1700s. His famous sefer is known as, as the Ksav Vekabalah. And he also wrote, he also wrote a parish called Ion Tfilah. And he says something amazing. He says over here, he says, look at paragraph Bez. Ben Dodo Rav Hirsch, he's actually the nephew of Rav Hirsch. Asher Kosov Mevo, Shiri Siduro in Perush Iun Tvila, Vigam Hu Metair Es Hashbas Hatvila Ala Mispalel, Kishvita Bain Shne Hayitzarim. Before I define that phrase, look at the next line. Ve'ilu Dvarov, Ve'ato Ish Tvila, when I'm davening. He's speaking to us, to the davener. When you stand before HaKadosh Baruch Hu to daven, So this is incredible. So the first thing that Mecklenburg identifies is life, life is a constant struggle. Constant struggle. But what struggle is he referring to? He's referring to the internal struggle between the Yetzir HaTov and the Yetzir HaRa. Many of us, maybe not everyone, I, I, I think many of us, live with a constant struggle between good and evil. I have a desire to do many good things, but on the flip side, I'm pulled in so many negative and wrong directions. And this is the struggle day in and day out. You know, the Maral says, the Maral says, the Torah gives form. You know, the Torah doesn't really discuss this struggle, which is part of the, really, think about it, like the tug of war between the good part of me and the negative part of me. It's a constant tug of war. So the Maharal says, why does the Torah never speak about this? Right? If it's such a, such a staple of the human condition, why doesn't the Torah discuss it? So the Maharal says, maybe the Torah does it because where does it discuss it? By Rivka Imenu. 
by the tug of war, well, for her it was, it was the tug, right, the tug of her pregnancy, Vaisrotitsu Habanim Bikirba, right, Rifki Imenu, there's a war going on in her womb. What's the war? It's the war between Yaakov and Esav. And says the Maral, isn't that the metaphor for life? Every single day, there is a battle between Yaakov and Esav that takes place inside of me. Every single day. Now, for some of us, it's a bit more pronounced. For others, fortunate ones, maybe it's a bit more nuanced. But many of us deal with a raging battle inside of us and have to actively, actively suppress desires, wants, lusts that are just not appropriate. It's my Esav. It's my Esav inside of me that's trying to pull me in a different direction. Yaakov, the Yaakov of me, is trying to pull me in a straight and narrow, trying to allow me to actualize my potential. And the Esav inside of me is pulling me in a different direction. And by the way, isn't it validating to learn that we all have an Esav inside of us? Right? I would say that sometimes one of the greatest disservices we do to Yiddishkeit is to kind of create this idea of perfection. That if you struggle with certain wants or desires or just different proclivities, if there's an Esav, there's something wrong with you. Right? A good Jew doesn't have these pushes and pulls. And it's not true. A Jew is a human being. And every single human being lives with a constant Esav and Yaakov that are having a spiritual tug of war inside of me, each one wanting to cling dominance over my soul. And Romekelenberg says something so beautiful. He says, Ata ta'ase pelilim. Tfila represents the opportunity. Literally, again, he uses the English of Pelilim to try to make judgment. We'll see how to define that better in just a moment. Between the two, the, 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 two, the two forces that are doing battle inside of the chambers of my heart. So again, Ramechlenberg describes this struggle, this struggle which exists within each of us every single day. Listen to this. Listen to this. So says Ramechlenberg, Tfila offers us the opportunity to decide who you're siding with. I said, I have this struggle inside of me. It's the struggle of Yaakov and Esau. There's a push, there's a pull. Which side do I identify with? Who do I identify with? Now, does, does choosing a side automatically go ahead and declare that one the victor and the other one the loser? And suddenly again, if I decide that I'm siding with the internal Yaakov, Esau is gone? No, the Esau never goes away. It says in Mecklenburg, it is important at least once a day to go ahead and reinforce your affiliation. Who do you side with? Do I side with the Yaakov inside of me or do I side with the Esav inside of me? And again, siding with Yaakov does not mean that the Esav struggles go away. But sometimes in life, you have to plant your flag. You, you know where this comes up often? You know, this comes up often in the realm of like, of like chinuch with our children. That often with our children, right, in a home, parents have to espouse certain ideas and ideologies. This is what we believe in. But you know, there comes that moment where the ideologies you espouse are not necessarily the ones you live, 
right? So we all have that moment where there is like this little bit of disconnect because I say I believe in this, but yet our lifestyle, maybe the home doesn't fully reflect that. And as our children become more mature, the conversation we have with them is, there's two pieces. There's what I believe and there's how I live. And for every single one of us, how we believe is never fully reflected in how we live. I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe you're Nashim Sidkanios. So everything you believe is reflected in the way you live. For most of us, for most of us, what we believe is never fully reflected in how we live. But every day I try to get a little bit closer. Every day I try to work. So my, I know what my hashkafas are. I know what I really believe in. Do those beliefs find full expression in the way that I live? It's never 100%. But every day I'm trying to get a little bit closer. Every day I'm trying to get just, just to reconcile the vision of what I believe and the vision of how I live, just to align them a bit more. And it's a lifetime of work. It's a lifetime of work. If you ask me what I believe in, I could tell you everything I believe in. And I believe in it, believe Shalom with a complete heart. Do every single one of those beliefs find expression in the way that I live? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. So therefore, again, my beliefs are rock solid, but my behaviors are not. My behaviors are not. And says Rav Mecklenburg, this is the power of tefillah. Tefillah is your pledge of allegiance. Tefillah is where I say, you know what? There is this constant tug of war inside of me. This constant tug of war. And tefillah offers me the opportunity to say, that although I don't behave perfectly, let me tell you where my allegiance lies. My allegiance is with Yaakov. My allegiance is with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. My allegiance is with Torah. My allegiance is with the good of life, even if at the end of the day that doesn't always find expression in the way that I live. Because pledging your allegiance to your system of values, to your code of ethics, to your behavior, to, to your hashkafas, is so incredibly Important, because think about this in just a moment. You know, I think that for many of us, we struggle with many things, but there's usually like those one, two, or three things that are the acute struggle, right? The things that maybe I've been struggling with for decades. It's possible, just, just they, they, don't, they don't go away, they're just always there. And you ever have that moment in life where you're, you, you've, you're facing this struggle and you just get tired, just get tired, right? There's just like spiritual fatigue. Like I'm tired of always fighting the same battles. I'm tired of always coming up against the same challenge. And maybe I'm successful, but inevitably at some point in time I fail. And there are times in life where I feel ready to give up. Rav Mecklenburg posits that's the power of tefillah. Tefillah is my opportunity to plant my flag, to gain some chizuk and to tell myself, that although behaviorally, I'm really not perfect and there's a lot to do, but I just want to tell you where I plant my flag and who I align myself with and aligning myself with Yaakov, aligning myself with Kedusha, aligning myself with HaKadosh Baruch with Torah gives me the chizik, gives me the strength to then work on my behaviors. So it's similar to Rav Hirsch. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a personalistic process of judgment but it's also an opportunity to choose a side. You know, it's, it's, this is a little bit counter, counter-cultural because, you know, in, in our greater society, we often have to adapt to a position that everyone is right. 
Everyone is right, just like everyone's a winner. I often feel this way. The worst disservice we do to kids is that everybody gets a trophy. After every single game, after, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Everybody gets a trophy. No, there are people who win and there are people who lose. That, that, that's the way life works. That's why, unfortunately, we don't, we're not really raising resilient children because we condition them to think that everyone always has to be a winner. It's not true. It's not true. No one's always a winner. And so much growth in life comes from knowing how to be a loser. That didn't sound right, but you understand what I mean. Right? In other words, knowing and how to lose, but knowing how to lose. Knowing how to lose and then pick yourself back up right afterwards. Right afterwards. Rav Mecklenburg says, there are a lot of times in life that I lose. I lose a lot of daily battles. I lose a lot of internal battles. But Tefillah offers me the opportunity to say which team I side with. I'm on team HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm on team Yetzer HaTov. I'm on team Yaakov. Do I play well for the team every single day? Nope, I do not. There are some days that I'm great and there are some days that I strike out every single time. But let me just tell you whose team I am on. That's from Mecklenburg. Number th- letter Gimel, still a number one, Rav Kook. Rav Kook Adab says, as one would imagine, a very esoteric approach to tefillah, which is quite beautiful. He says, paragraph Gimel, It's such a beautiful phrase. Rav Kook says, well, let's read it. He says, Look at that beautiful phrase. Says Rav Kook, the essence of tefillah, from below, to up above. Meaning what? Ketzad. Mitoch osa hamayon, hamole kidusha tiv is shebelibenu, harenu dolim, motsimis hargeshosav haidonos minakoach alapol. To tell you this outside of Cook says so beautifully. Recording stop. Recording in progress. Okay, good. <laughs> Rav Cook says so beautifully. Rav Cook explains that what's the essence of tefillah? Tefillah is discovering your inner kochos. Milamata. Limalo. It's reaching down inside of myself, discovering the abilities I have, and then using tefillah as the springboard. Tefillah is the discovery of the abilities, and now I could go ahead and do something with those abilities in life. Milamata limala. Now, of course, you can understand milamata limala means I daven from down here and my tefillos ascend on high. Rav Kook says it means something different. Milamata, I reach deep inside myself, find the strengths, the abilities, the kochos that I possess, lemalo, and then uplift them by finding a way to plug them into dynamic activity. So again, the common denominator amongst these three different opinions is that the essence of tefillah is the opportunity to introspect, total opportunity to introspect, Right? So different aspects of introspection. Rav Hirsch, judgment. Personalistic judgment. Tefillah offers me the opportunity, how am I doing in life? How am I doing in life? Am I a successful person? Well, have I defined what success means? And if I've defined what success means, how am I measuring up? If I'm measuring up, great. How could I do better? If I'm not measuring up, how could I improve and get to a state of success? Rav Mecklenburg, Tefillah 
offers me the opportunity to plant my flag with my team of choice. Who do I side with? Who do I side with? Not everything is right. Not everything is correct. You know, we li- like, as I mentioned, I was mentioning before, we live in an age of moral relativity, right? You're not allowed to say that someone or something is wrong. You're not allowed, everyone is correct. That might work fine for greater society. We do not subscribe to that idea in our hashkafa of Yiddishkeit. There is right and there is wrong. There are bad things, there are good things. That's the way. Who do I side with? Who and what, do, where am I planting my flag? And Rav Kook, Tefillah, the opportunity to look inside, discover my abilities, discover my abilities, and then say, okay, what am I doing with these kochos? Milamata lemala. How do I dig inside myself, find what makes me unique, what makes me special? And then how do I plug it into the world? Now, by the way, what's incredible about this, I, I happen to find that when you look at these hashkafas of tefillah, Tefillah itself begins to make so much more sense. Because suddenly, Tefillah is not about God. It just sounds crazy, right? But Tefillah is not about God. What is Tefillah about? Or who is Tefillah about? Me. Tefillah is about me. You see, everybody gets so wrapped up in the hashkafas about Tefillah, Kaddish Baruch Hu, he knows what does Tefillah matter. Who says tefillah is about God? I know it sounds strange to say, who says tefillah is about the Ribbon Sholom? If you just look over here, now again, granted I did not give you the full array of the opinions on the Ashkaf of tefillah, but it is quite striking. Rav Hirsch, Rav Mecklenburg, Rav Cook, all three opinions saying not, don't make one mention of God in the context of tefillah. They all understand that the power of prayer is that it offers me the opportunity to step out of myself or maybe to step into myself, to step out of life and to really engage with myself in a real substantive fashion. Judge myself, choose my team, find my co-host. This is the essence of tefillah. There's only one problem, right? What's the problem? What's the problem with these approaches? What's the problem? They don't really seem to be a correct explanation of the primary examples of prayer that we have. Right? When we look in the world of tefillah, there are two primary tefillos. Two pri- now, there are many examples of tefillah, and we learn kind of a little bit from different things, but there are two primary tefillos that ultimately serve as like the paradigm for the prayer experience. Number one is in number two. Number, right? Example number one is in source number two, Moshe Rabbeinu. Remember, Parshas Veschana, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I supplicated to Hashem at this time, saying, Hashem Elohim, I've only begun to see your greatness. I've only begun to see your awesomeness. Ebrana, let me go into Eretz Yisrael. Right? This is Moshe Rabbeinu's famous last supplicative plea to enter into Eretz Yisrael. And in number three, in number three, the Gemara Meseches Bracho says, and again, this is, this is halacha now. The halacha says, we learn so much from Moshe Rabbeinu. Darash Rabbi Smaloi. 
A person should not immediately launch into requests. When you daven, don't just start asking stuff from God immediately. Rather, what should you do? First, you should praise Hashem, and only then should you ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for something. Where do we know this model from? Minolon, Mimosha. Dechsev. So it says interesting. If you look at number two, you'll notice Moshe Rabbeinu has a very strategic model for how he prays. How does he pray? Right? First, he praises Hashem. Right? I've only begun to see your greatness. Praise Hashem. Then he asks HaKadosh Baruch Hu for what he wants. Then he asks to go into the land. So the Gemara says, by the way, this is the paradigm for prayer. And by the way, where do, we see the, where do we see this paradigm? Where do we see it? Shmona Esrei. Right? This is the entire structure of Shmona Esrei. The first three brachos of Shmona Esrei are praise, are shevach, they're praise. Right? Then we launch into supplications, and then we end off again with gratitude, with thanksgiving, hodah. Where, and again, this halach lemaisa. So where does prayer find its model? What's the model for prayer? Moshe Rabbeinu. First you praise, and then you ask. First you praise, and then you ask. The second primary source for tefillah, which is what we're going to spend the entirety of next year on as well, is Chana. Is Chana. Now the story of Chana, the story of Chana is a, is a fascinating and riveting story, and how Chana becomes really the primary paradigm for Tefillah, even more than Moshe Rabbeinu in many respects. If you take a look at number four, so this is from the beginning of Shmuel Aleph. So you know the story. Remember again, Chana, we know is barren. Chana doesn't have children. She goes up with her husband Elkanah and with his other wife Penina. Every year they go up to Shiloh, to the Mishkan. Chana is always very broken during this experience because Penina is there with all of her kids. So Chana finished is eating and what happens? Pasak Yud, maras nafesh. She's very bitter. She's very bitter. Vatispalel al Hashem ubachotivke. Vatispalel al Hashem. By the way, that phrase is very interesting. What does Vatispalel al Hashem mean? How would you translate that? She davened on God. Now it happens in biblical Hebrew, al and el are interchangeable. Right? So al. But it is interesting because part of Hannah's brokenness is in not understanding why God would not give her this most simple of prayers. Right? I'm not asking for anything crazy. I'm just asking for a child. I'm just asking for a child. And there's a certain element of sadness, bitterness, and anger. And anger on the part of Hannah. Anger on the part of Hannah. Why, why won't you give this to me? There's not necessarily just a tefillah el Hashem, but there's a tefillah on God. There's a taina. There's a complaint. There's a grievance against that Kaddish Baruch Hu. V'atidar neder v'atomar Hashem tzavakos imro'o tireh ba'ani amasecha u'zechartani v'lo tishkach es amasecha v'nasat l'amascha zera anashim u'nisativ l'Hashem kol yimei chayov u'mora lo ya'ala arosho. So Hannah makes a dramatic promise. Kaddish Baruch if you give me a son, I will give him to you. Which, if you think about it, is, so, is such a strange promise, right? In other words, she's waiting all of these years for a child, and effectively she says, if you give me the child, I will give him to you. So I will deny myself. Remember, again, Hannah did not raise her son, right? Who raised Shmuel? Who raised Shmuel? Elia Cohen. 
right? Shmuel was brought to the Mishkan at the age of three. He was weaned and he was brought to the Mishkan. That was it. That was it. His mother would visit him when she would go out and be Ola, Ola Regal. She would come up with Elkanah. That, that was it. She, she, did not, she did not raise her child. Right? Eli raised her child. The Mishkan raised Shmuel. Vaya. So what happens? Go on a little bit. Vayaki here besalli hispalif ni Hashem. She davin incessantly before Hashem. Ve'eli shomer espia. The Chana himidaberes aliba. Chana ultimately was speaking in her heart. Raksifa seha naos. Her lips were moving. Ve'kola lo yishamea. And her voice was not heard. And of course, Vayach sheve Eli lishikora. Eli never saw someone daven like this. Never saw someone daven like this. He thought she was drunk. More about that next week. What I want to show you, from a halachic perspective, Chana is incredibly important. How so? Take a look at number five. Amr Rav Hamuna. Rav Hamuna says, Siginadar Gimar Masechis Brachas. How many incredibly important halachas regarding to the regarding prayer we learned from Chana. For example, Chana Himedaberes Aliba. Mikan Shem Mispalo Shetzarek Shechavin Libo. So it's interesting. The Gemara understands Chana Medaberes Aliba. The Gemara understands to mean she had Kavana. She concentrated. From Chana we learn you have to have Kavana when you daven. Incredible. You have to have Kavana when you daven. Raksefa Sa'anaos. Furthermore, her lips were moving. Mikan Lemispal Shiyachtoch Bisvasav. Here we see from davening, it's not enough to scan the words with your eyes. You have to move your lips. In other words, you have to articulate words. So from Chana, I learned Kavana. Isn't that incredible? The whole concept of Kavana, that I have to have Kavana when I daven, is learned from Chana. That I have to move my lips, that's from Chana. The kola lo yishamea, and her voice was not heard. What do I learn from there? Mikan sha'asr lahagbiya kola betilaso. You're not allowed to daven out loud. Now, this is an interesting one. In other words, you're allowed to daven out loud, but the halacha is you can't daven out loud in a way that distracts other people. You could daven out loud, you could daven in an audible tone, but for certain things, let's say Shimon Esri, you're not allowed to daven out loud, right? Shimon Esri, you have to daven to yourself. It can't be audible to anyone else. But the idea is you're not supposed to daven out loud. So from Chana, we learn three incredible, uh, one more halacha, the Yachshave Eli Shikora. Eli thought she was drunk and therefore stopped her. Mikan sheshikar asr lehispalo. From here we learn that someone who is drunk is not permitted to daven. So look at these incredible halachas that we learned from Chana. So from Chana I learned you have to have kavana. From Chana I learned you have to move your lips when you daven. From Chana I learned that you're not allowed to raise your voice in a distracting fashion. And from Chana I learned you can't daven under the influence. Right? You can't daven drunk. Can't daven drunk. So first, I just want to point out, isn't it incredible that we learn so much more from Chana than we learn from Moshe Rabbeinu? From Moshe Rabbeinu, I learn a framework. A framework. Praise, petition. Praise, petition. You don't go right into asking for whatever you want. First, you praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then you get into what you want. But from Chana, it's incredible. From Chana, I learn Kavana. From Chana, I learn moving my lips. From Chana, I learn not raising my voice. From Chana, I learn all of the, the basics of tefillah. Now, why am I bringing this up to you? Because here's what I found intriguing, which is I started out this year, started out this year with three different models of prayer, right? So we have Rav Hirsch, self-judgment. Rav Mecklenburg, choosing my team. Rav Cook, digging inside of myself. What's the common denominator amongst these three approaches? 
They have nothing to do with what? Nothing to do with? Hashem. But more specifically, nothing to do with asking God for anything. Right? Again, even if, even if you want to say, well, all of this has to do with Hashem, because at the end of the day, I judge myself based on what HaKadosh Baruch Hu's expectations are of me. Right? And ultimately, I'm choosing the team HaKadosh Baruch Hu or Mecklenburg. And I'm looking inside to see what kolchos HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave me, how I could use them. So they have to do with God. But the three, the three philosophies of prayer as espoused in source number one have nothing to do with asking stuff from God. Yet, the paradigmatic examples of prayer, Moshe and Chana, are both what? Both what? Petitional prayer. They're both asking stuff. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu, let me go into Eretz Yisrael. Chana, give me a son. So how do you reconcile this? How do I reconcile? And by the way, I just want to point out, if you think about it, virtually, every single, every single instance of prayer that we have in the Torah, if you think about it, is all people davening for what? For things, right? In other words, we don't find anyone just davening for the sake of davening, right? The closest example we have is maybe Yitzchak, right? Maybe Yitzchak. Yitzchak Avinu, right? The Torah says, Parshish Chai Sara, Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach Basada. Yitzchak went out into the field with Nos Arav in the evening. And the Gemara Darshins, wh- what do we see from there? What was he doing in the field? Sicha is also the same wording as Tila. He was davening what we call Mincha, the afternoon prayer. Yitzchak is maybe the only example of someone who. Da- now, what is Yitzchak davening for? What is he davening for? I don't know, it doesn't sound... In fact, I believe Yitzhak Abedichev says so beautifully. He says, this is the power of Mincha. He says, that's why Mincha is fascinating. Mincha is the most powerful tefillah, the Rebbe says. In Chassidus, there's a concept like this. That Mincha is the most powerful tefillah. Why? The Rebbe says something so beautiful. He says, Shachres, you have to dive into God. Right? Why? Because the whole day is ahead of me. And so many things could go right. And so many things could go wrong. I need divine assistance. Davening at night, you have to daven at night. Why? Because night, nighttime is filled with so much uncertainty and so much danger. I give my soul back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I need to daven at night. Middle of the day, do I need to daven? Do I need to daven? No. No. He says, why does a Jew daven in the middle of the day? Why do I daven mincha? Simply because I want to connect. That's why he says, that's why it's called mincha. Mincha actually means a gift. A gift. It's just a prayer for the sense of connection. That's why t- Mincha is one of the most powerful tefillos that we have. My point is, in Chumash, you only find people praying for stuff. You, right? you don't find them engaging. So how do you reconcile this? I have three, I have three philosophies, three ashkafas of tefillah, which are beautiful, all about engaging in the process of self-judgment. Where am I holding in life? Who do I affiliate myself with? And what can I find when I dig deep inside myself? But again, how do I reconcile that with the paradigmatic examples of prayer being petitional prayer for people who need things? Moshe needs Eretz Yisrael. Chana needs a son. So how do you reconcile this? Perhaps, perhaps the way to reconcile this is as follows. Tefillah starts with asking for things, Right? Why does it start for asking for things? Let, let's think about this in just a moment. You see, if you go through Rav Hirsch, Rav Mecklenburg, and Rav Cook, right? In order to engage in the process of self-judgment, and in order to really decide whose team I want to be on, and in order to look inside myself to see what co-host, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? What's the first step? 
in order to go ahead and engage in this process of tefillah, what do you need? A person needs to make themselves vulnerable. See, that's really the first step of tefillah, is vulnerability, a willingness to make myself vulnerable. You know, most of us don't like to ask ourselves the question, am I successful in life? Why don't I like to ask that question? Because I don't want the answer. Because the truth is, no, I'm, even if I am successful, am I as successful as I could be? No, absolutely not. I don't like asking myself that question. It's a difficult question. I don't like making myself vulnerable. Whose team do I affiliate with? You know, it's easy. Of course, I'm team God. Ra rah, team God. Absolutely. I'm all about Yaakov. I'm all about Kedusha. Really? Is that true? Is that really where I planted my flag? Is that really what my lifestyle is conducive of? Is that really reflected in the decisions that I make in life? Is that really true? Right? Do I really want to look inside myself to find my co-hosts, to find my strengths? Because if I find my strengths, you know, the best thing in life, right? I, I've often felt this. You know, who, who, sometimes, you ever have a day like that? Where, like that, right? Where you go ahead and you come home and maybe you see like the person mowing his lawn and maybe again, he's just the guy who's sitting on the tractor mower and he's just going back and forth and he's got his earphones in and you say to yourself, you know what? I want that guy's life. I want that guy's life. That's what I want. I, I just, I, I want to, I, I don't want to have to think about anything. And I just want, of course, that guy has his own peckle, I guarantee you, right? But you, you, you ever... It's really difficult to make ourselves vulnerable. It's really, and most of us live in a very guarded fashion. We create high walls, high walls. I don't want to bring down my walls. I don't want to make myself vulnerable because if I have to make myself vulnerable and I see, and it's not just that, it's most of us. The other piece about making yourself vulnerable is when you have to begin to accept responsibility over things. And instead, if I just keep my walls high, we all have people in life who we could blame the reason why things are the way they are is because this person this and that person that. And I like to keep my walls high because the moment I make myself vulnerable, I may have to take some ownership as to why things are the way they are. So most of us don't really make ourselves vulnerable. We, we don't really. We just, because it's too, it, it, it opens the door to too much discomfort. The three philosophies of tefillah, Rav Hirsch, Rav Mecklenburg, and Rav Cook all require personalistic vulnerability. I have to really be willing to look inside myself and to be honest, and to be honest, to be really brutally honest about who and what I am. And most of us can't, not can't, most of us are unwilling to do that. So there's a step. There's a step to creating vulnerability. What's the first step in, in creating personalistic vulnerability? Is asking Hashem for things. See, because if you think about it, that's also vulnerability, right? When I ask God for things, what am I essentially saying? What am I saying? I am not the provider of all, right? I'm not the provider of all. As much, as, as hard as I work, I can't guarantee my parnasa. And as much as I want it, I can't go ahead and ensure my health. And as much as I desire shiduchim, children, all different things like that, I could put it in my hishtadlus, but at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs to come through. He needs to come through. When we ask for things, that by definition is an expression of vulnerability. 
but it's a vulnerability that most of us are comfortable with. I don't have a problem saying I don't control everything. I don't have a problem saying, God, I need you to give me A, B, C, D, and E because Cheshbaruch runs the world. I'm comfortable with that level of vulnerability. But the hope that Chazal had for us is that after you take that first step of vulnerability, a, re- a reliance on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm vulnerable, God. I can't provide everything. I want more than anything to have certain things in life. But I recognize that I have to put in my human effort, but my human effort only bears fruit if you bless my efforts with success. That's an expression of vulnerability. And the hope is that once I can make myself vulnerable by asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for things, I can make myself vulnerable enough to engage in true prayer. So petition, petitional prayer is gateway prayer, right? Petitional prayer is what opens up the process, but it's only the beginning. Petitional prayer allows me to make myself vulnerable in a comfortable way. And then I have to make myself vulnerable in an uncomfortable way. And that's when I begin to do all of these three processes. Judge myself. Am I successful? Am I not successful? If I'm not successful, why am I not successful? What am I doing? What can I, what can I be doing? And how am I gauging that success? Who do I really affiliate with? Team Yaakov or Team Esav? Who do I plant my flag with? And is that reflected in the way that I live? And lastly, what are the kohos I possess? Do I have kohos? Of course I have kohos. Have I discovered them? Or have I just resigned myself to a life of mediocrity? Am I okay with coasting because it's so much easier than looking inside myself. Those are questions that are really difficult questions to ask of ourselves. And those are questions which require a heightened sense of vulnerability. So perhaps when we bring this all together, yes, the paradigmatic examples of prayer are Moshe and Chana. Examples where people are asking for things. Not that the essence of tefillah is petitional prayer. The essence of tefillah are the first three things we started out with tonight. Personalistic evolution. That's the goal of tefillah. But that requires vulnerability. Asking a Kaddish Baruch Hu for things allows us a first step into the realm of personal vulnerability in a way that doesn't make us exceedingly uncomfortable. But the hope is, you know, think about this, by the way. Isn't this true in every relationship? Right? A person gets into a relationship. And the truth is, the scary part of any life relationship as in you have to make yourself vulnerable to another human being. That's the hardest part of any relationship. And especially if you've been hurt in the past, right? There's even a greater sense of reticence to, to make myself vulnerable. But if you don't make yourself vulnerable to the other, the relationship is stunted. It cannot progress. The power of prayer lies in making ourselves vulnerable. Because it's only once there's vulnerability that we can engage in the introspective process of prayer. But asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for our petitional requests is the first step in that vulnerability. So it turns out that asking God for stuff, which so often in the hashkaf of prayer occupies center stage, is not an ends. It's a means. The goal of tefillah is Rav Mecklenburg, Rav Hirsch, Rav Kook, that's the goal. But in order to get there, petitional prayer allows me to wade into the waters of vulnerability, begin to get comfortable making myself vulnerable, and then hopefully, again, the vulnerability will grow to the point 
that I could truly introspect in the three ways that we outlined. And this, I think, I, I, I think is such a... I, I, was, I have to thank you all for allowing me to give this year because the truth is, I'm going to be honest, I think like many of us, I, I, I pay attention to davening, but not pay attention as to what I'm trying to accomplish through my davening. And I think when you begin to think about it like this, you begin to see that we have a great gift to think about ourselves and to think about our lives, however many times a day you're davening, once a day, twice a day, three times a day. And by the way, you also begin to see this, that, that you could undergo this process even without the formal framework of prayer. This goes back to our last year, that according to many opinions, one could fulfill, even if you know that prayer is a biblical obligation, one could fulfill the biblical obligation of prayer through, through just thought, through contemplation, even without a siddur, a siddur is there as a mechanism. Everything that Chazal created with organized prayer is there as a stepping stone to ultimately get us to the process of prayer, which is introspective, which is self-evaluative, which allows us ultimately to truly understand ourselves. All right, so we'll stop over here for today. And Mirat Hashem, I think we have one more, one more, right, in January, I think one more scheduled. Share Mirat Hashem. Next year, we're going to focus a bit more on the halachos of tefillah, as they emerge from the story of Chana. We're going to focus much more on the Chana story because the Chana story, and by the way, people often think the Chana story is only Chana's tefillah before she got a child. It's not true. Remember, actually, tefillah's Chana, tefillah's Chana, right, is actually the tefillah where after she received the child, right? So in other words, there's a power in prayer before you get what you want. There's a power in prayer after you get what you want. In Mirat Hashem, that'll be our focus in the next class. Yes? So, prayer is supposed to be very personal. Very, very personal. So for, for women, I understand it, but for men, why is it then that it's uh, better to daven with a minion than to daven by yourself? Okay, so there are, because there are so many other things that happen in the concept of tefillah. For example, there's the concept that sometimes... I need something from Hashem or I need something from myself and I don't have the requisite merits to be able to carry the day. So the truth is, the truth is that tefillah b'tzibor, congregational prayer, allows me to tap in to the collective merits. There's also a power of prayer in that it roots us in community. It roots us in community, meaning we don't, you know, I, I eventually kind of one of the, there are many wonderful things I think many wonderful things that we discovered over the course of the pandemic, I think one of the sad realities that happened as a, is that people kind of retreated into their own corners and have not really yet even emerged. There's a power of being part of a tzibur, where tefillah b'tzibur, the obligation to daven with a minion, roots you as part of the collective. So it's like anything in Yiddishkeit, there's generally multiple things happening through any one mechanism. So when you daven, there's all of these things. There's also collective, collective merit. There's also being part of community. That's why there's the emphasis of Tzila B'Tzibor. All right, wonderful. Thank you everyone for coming. We'll continue our session next month. Have a great day, Alison. Awesome.